Well, again, thank you for being here tonight. I, I, uh, I usually get to talk at the very end, but I wanted to get it over with. <laughs> Help myself a little bit. Um, are there any Beatle maniacs in the audience? Any Beatle maniacs? Okay. Um, if you're a Beatle maniac, you know there's a bit of a debate that's gone on for years of which is the first original Beatles song not about romantic love. Which is the first original Beatles song? We're not talking about their cover of Money. We're talking about which is the first original Beatles song not about romantic love. And the default answer people give is usually what? Don't, you, don't say that word. I'm a loser. Close. People say Nowhere Man is the first one that has nothing romantic about it whatsoever. Great song, right? McCartney's gone on record as saying that drive my car. Baby, you can drive my car. That was his attempt to sort of broaden the themes a little bit. From sort of I like you, you like me, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would bring up help. I would bring up help as possibly being the first true original Beatles song that is not about romantic love. And yes, it's about needing somebody, but in all honesty, it could be a best friend, it could be um, you know, a sibling or something like that, even a parent. But if I were to tell you that that's the first Beatles song that is not about romantic love, I would be wrong. Because the first Beatles song, original Beatles song, not about romantic love, is from the dark horse himself. 1963, George Harrison wrote a little slice of misanthropy called Don't Bother Me. Leave me alone. I've got no time for you right now. Basically, and this got, this got on the Beat the Beatles record, you know, where they're all wearing the turtlenecks and the, they, they look sort of German. And um, Don't Bother Me is a really an off-putting song if you think about it. That's one of the reasons why we love curmudgeonly George. He's like, I'll write my very first original composition for the Beatles, and it's going to be called Don't Bother Me. Anyway, but let's get back to help, because that's where my gut, that's what my gut wants to say, help is the first one. Lennon wrote the lyrics of the song to express his stress after the Beatles' quick rise to success. Beatlemania was in full swing, and the isolation and the scrutiny and the projection, the just sheer insanity of his life uh, caused him, inspired him to write a song that was really a, more of a prayer than a song. Speaking about the song in later years, he says, I was fat and depressed and I was crying out for help. And so instead of going to the movie, which is, has its, you know, pluses and minuses, Let's watch a clip of them singing it in 1965, just after it's been released. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Yeah. 
board and Ringo you hold an umbrella <laughs> and George you, the look he gives the camera is so funny only Paul is really hamming it up and and Lennon not only looks depressed he he looks a little stoned um, but this song help is remarkable and it represents the first crack in the protective shell that John Lennon had built around his emotions it's a real milestone in his songwriting the man that would come to be defined as the great, vulnerable songwriter of the late 60s, so much so that his first solo record, Plastic Ono Band, some people deem it unlistenable because it's too raw. Mother, I had you, but you never had me. Sorry, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. Which ends in him just screaming, Mommy, don't go. Mommy, don't go. It's hard to listen to. Um, and yet... Lennon says that Help was one of his favorite Beatles songs he ever wrote. Right before he died in 1980, he was quoted as saying, that is one of the best songs I ever wrote. And as I would say, the song is so good because the song is a prayer. It holds up the, all these years later because it is a universal cry. And it's what we've come here to discuss, Help. Now, I'm only going to use this, the, the, the phrase low anthropology once <laughs> in this talk. Thank you for all of you who have bared with me this year. But when someone asked me at a, at a, at a, in an elevator, you know, you do actually occasionally get asked for an elevator pitch in an elevator. Happened to me only once, but someone said, what is this book Low Anthropology about? And the thing that came to mind was uh, it's about human beings as fundamentally in need of help. And I didn't know where this person was coming from. I had no, no clue. But I thought that that was on solid ground saying that. Who disagrees with that? Human beings as in need of help. Help, yes, from each other. And in, in, in my view and the, the, book, the view of the book, help from God. And in fact, more than help, deliverance. But one of the ways we know this outside of the sort of Bible or getting to any kind of religious witness whatsoever is we know that it's true. We know that people are fundamentally in need of help because almost everything we do in life is a cry for help. That's the contention of this talk, at least. Almost everything we do is a cry for help. So I want to talk then briefly about help for what 
And then what are the, a couple of the common ways we look for help or have been looking for help this past year? And then finally, talk about what does God's help look like? So help for what? Um, first of all, we're in need of help for dealing with what we would just call, a, you know, safely a very broken world. My younger brother Simeon has this great uh, phrase that he discovered in the world of personal construct psychology. The phrase is slot rattling. Do you know what slot rattling is? It's a way to describe um, people who seem to vary between extremes in their behavior. When, when, one definition says, when the confident acting person experiences difficulties or invalidation in their behavior, they often revert back to the original pole of timidity. Hence the term slot rattling as the person moves from one pole to another and back again. And this has been used to describe the way that often people in law enforcement have moments of law breaking and that you go from one pole to the other. And I think slot rattling is a great phrase to describe what it's like to live in the world. To be stuck in what feels like an endless cycle of victimization and recrimination. Where people are trading the, the heroes and villain hats constantly. But there doesn't seem to be anything new under the sun. I was done unto, and now it's being done unto me. And so on and so forth. We are slot rattling and we need help. What appears to be change is actually just a different position in the same groove of there and back. So we need help to get out of this slot rattling in which we are often stuck. But secondly, we need help with acceleration. I have a friend who's here from Canada, Matt Hamilton, and he sent me an article years ago by a German sociologist named Hartmut Rosa who talks about the key to understanding modernity is to understanding time as accelerating. Oh, great. German sociology, this is not why you came to the Mockingbird Conference. Hopefully. But I was thinking about it in terms, I was just, my younger brother was just visiting me in Charlottesville where we live, and it's a university town. And like many university towns, at least, that have capital campaigns all the time, everything's under construction, right? And so... Um, They've just built like this new you know, data science center and then you go two blocks down and there's another crater in the ground and they're building something new. And Simeon turned to me and said like what, you know in England there's so much red tape we can't actually build anything ever. What are you guys building? And I said I don't know. They're trying to keep up. They are always building something because they have to stay current and new. That's as far as I can tell. He said, why are they building something new? I said, I, I, I don't know. They already have all the top people. They already seem to have plenty of money, but they just want the new stuff. You see this in schools all the time. There's an acceleration at work. You see this also, though, not only in the world of sort of higher education. You see it in your own life, I think. Sometimes churches feel like they have to constantly be ramping up programs. Bigger and better. I see this in Mockingbird all the time. Well, we've, we're continuing with these things. We can't stop them, but we've got to add these six other things. 
Anne Helen Peterson, who spoke here last year, said that to be alive in the modern world, you realize that most people feel left behind in some way. No matter what their life is like, everyone's struggle is different, but life is not a struggle contest. And what she's describing there is to live in a world that's accelerating all the time. Um, they, Rosa <clears throat> says that it, it's, like, uh, it's kind of like inflation. Every year you have to run a bit faster just to keep what you already have. To say nothing of getting anything new. He talks about his students. He says, up until the 1970s, as freedom was increasing... When young people were asked, what do you want to do, they would talk about their dreams or their aspirations or their ideas. But now this has turned around and the acceleration has dis diminished our actual freedom. Now my students ask, what can I do in order to successfully compete? It is no longer about developing your own perspective, but it is about fitting in. So we need help from the slot rattling we need help from the acceleration, the crazy-making, faster treadmill on which we often seem to live. But that's the sort of bigger picture. We also need help dealing with the broken self, dealing with the low-grade pain with which we all sort of exist in our lives, that thing that causes us to continue scrolling late at night hoping that we'll find something that will make it feel like we got enough done that day, or distracting us from the sense that we didn't, that we ended the day in a productivity deficit, in the red. This broken self, one writer I really like, Matthew Spector, said that uh, we are all stapled to our temperaments. It's a very poetic way of saying that you are you, and that is your main problem. <laughs> Another writer who we've quoted quite a bit this year and who I come to kind of uh, find fascinating is a guy named Freddie DeBoer. And he was uh, talking about, there was some, the New York Times ran an article in which they interviewed a bunch of sort of Gen Z younger people who talked about how much they prefer online life to real life. They don't like who they are in real life. They get to be who they like to be online. It's much more exciting and they feel more validated. He asked himself, he found this very dispiriting. And he said, what would a healthy culture and caring parents do for those kids? Well, they would be pulled aside and told, you are you. And you will always be you. We live here on this planet in this culture as this species. You live in the times you live in and you will never live anywhere else. The world gets better, and it gets worse. Your life gets easier, and it gets harder. Progress happens, happiness is possible, but the world is an irredeemably broken place. Tragedy is the endowment of our bodies, and you will always, always, always be you. And you'll still be you when you head off to college and make brand new friends. And you'll still be you after you come out to your parents. And you'll still be you after you get that job or that promotion. And you'll still be you after you lose those last 10 pounds. And you'll still be you after you fall in love. And you'll still be you after the AI revolution. The only sensible path forward is to learn to accept the brokenness of human life. To develop resilience in the face of its petty cruelties. 
and to learn to live with yourself. If they're right, if he's right, then everything we do is a cry for help. The over-politization of everything under the sun, it's a cry for help. The addiction to life in the virtual realm, it's a cry for help. Everything is a cry for help. This is what I think is part of the anti-polarization technology that fuels the mocking cast. If you listen to the mocking cast, one key piece of anti-polarization technology, how's that for pretentious language? Our methodology, our operating methodology, if you listen to that webs, that, that, that podcast, is we ask, usually at the beginning, is how might this alienating or confusing or entertaining trend actually be a cry for help? Usually the answers will generate sympathy or compassion. But even if they don't, they'll at least generate some new possibilities and engage the imagination. And that's what I hope to do. You know, Augustine once wrote that there is a hidden anguish which is inaudible to men, for the desire of your heart itself is your prayer. Every desire that you are acting out in all of these trends, in all of these areas, it's a prayer, it's a cry for help, it's a John Lennon song. So, how have you been looking for help? How this, what are the cries for help we've been paying attention to this past year? Well, we've got one of the world experts uh, coming tomorrow to speak to us. Reno Raphael has written about wellness. And if you're a person in the world, you know how much wellness has become a code for, it's basically rebranded self-help. And it's become a, 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 a new rubric for you to feel bad about yourself and all the things you're not doing to take care of yourself. And something that started out as maybe a very positive and, 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 and permission to take a breath in a demanding world has somehow become a new you know, thing to fail at. And she's going to talk about how this all plays out. But I want to talk about two tonight. And the first one is money. You know, I was really kind of uh, taken aback a couple weeks ago when the Wall Street Journal reported what the University of Chicago had found out in its recent poll of American values over the past quarter century. That the, Amer the percentage of American adults who view patriotism, religion, parenting, tolerance, and community involvement as very important has all declined. The only priority tested which perceived, whose perceived importance grew during that period, the pollsters reported, was money. That was it. By far the highest priority among college freshmen, according to a UCLA poll, is the making of money, but it was only began in 1989. Before that, there were other things, like developing mastery of, a, of, a, of an idea or trade or, 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 or helping my community. Now, let's put this technology to the test. How might we see this as a cry for help? Well, Sarah spoke up on the most recent Mockingcast. You know what she said? She said, Dave, when we hear that about college students, and I'm talking about a babysitter I had last week who is 19 and already has her job in New York for when she's 24, I thought, really? That's really early. And you're not, you, you haven't finished your, your first year. Um, it's accelerating. Everything's accelerating. 
It used to be you get those jobs your senior year, then your junior year, now it's your sophomore year, and soon it'll be your freshman year. Actually, before, it'll, be, it'll be before that soon. But how could it be seen as a cry for help? Well, perhaps they grew up in a generation where the financial crisis hit in 2008, and their parents lost everything they had. Perhaps they have watched as every institution that they hold dear, they told was important, has failed, including the church. And nothing else seems to be a safe source of comfort except for cash. That's the only thing, the only way they might find life to be a little easier. Everything else is a false promise. I can count on dollars and cents. Or you could say that they look at what it costs to raise a family today and they realize that it's accelerating. And if they don't get on the ball now, their future self will not have any chance, not at a better life, but even a normal life. That is a way of looking at this, that sort of what I would call hyper-materialistic view of values through the realm, through the lens of, um, of a sort of a cry for help. How could you possibly blame them? for thinking this is the only option available to them. Another place we've turned to help with, I think is a, is, is a kind of a more effective means, is therapy. Now, I've never received more flack uh, on the Mockingcast than when we talked about therapeutic overreach in our culture. Partly because I stand here as a person who's been profoundly helped by therapy, has been in therapy for as long as he can remember at this point, and is currently, you know, has to, you know, in two days, got, I've, got, I've got lots of more therapy to do, okay? So don't question my credentials, all right? <laughs> I wrote a book about it, all right? Um, the psychological story of life is a true and helpful story. It's been true and helpful to me personally. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing that it's easier than ever to ask for help in this regard. The destigmatization of mental health, I think, is an unassailable good in our society. And yet somehow we went from never talking about mental health to only talking about mental health. You know what I'm talking about, self-talk boundaries, gaslighting, holding emotional space for someone. These are, this is the language of therapy and it has crept into all sorts of other aspects of our life such that um, the, the, there was an amazing article written by a woman named Rebecca Fishbein a couple weeks ago asking, is therapy speak making us selfish? <laughs> and she wrote this, she sucks about young woman named Anna, names changed for confidentiality, got the following text last summer from a friend asking to end their five-year friendship. Her friend wrote this, I'm in a place where I'm trying to honor my needs and act in alignment with what feels right within the scope of my life, and I'm afraid our friendship doesn't seem to fit that framework. <laughs> I can no longer hold the emotional space you've wanted me to and think the support you need is beyond the scope of what I can offer. Anna said it felt like she was ending the friendship with an HR memo. 
And this article and many like it, there's been actually a spate of articles about how somehow what was intended for good and what has helped so many people has now become a tool for basically doing whatever we want whenever we want to. Some of the my way or the highway, I'm setting a boundary that you can't cross or else advice out there can ultimately backfire. One psychologist named, uh, he's got a great, great name, uh, Darby Saxby at the University of California said, there's an extent to which defining a lot of boundaries and being very quick to abandon relationships that aren't optimal actually sets people up to be more isolated and lonely. To say nothing of the fact that therapy speak sometimes has a way of individualizing society-wide problems. But I don't need to tell you that. I want you to go to therapy. I think we, 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 it's, a, it's, you know, it's a very, very wonderful opportunity for us. And yet, it's still not enough. It doesn't give quite the amount of help we need. You know, and I know that because of John Lennon. In 1980, 1979, he was in a, he was in a period called sort of his, 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 he didn't record anything publicly uh, for five years towards the end of his life until his last album. And uh, the only recording we have of him singing the song Help comes from, from then. And it's a remarkable recording. Now, before I say this, Lennon did more therapy than any of you will ever do in your life, okay? He had the money. He had Arthur Yanoff, you know, at his, on his beck and call. He was, he was sort of a pre-Brian Wilson type of uh, person who was interested in personal healing. And he wrote records about it. And, and, and I think it got on a lot of people's nerves, in fact, around him. And yet, there seemed to be something that it didn't do. The psychological story which accounts for so much of life so much more than the financial one, doesn't account for everything. So let's listen to this next clip of John Lennon singing in 1979, probably a few blocks from here. When I was younger, so much younger than I'm singing it myself at the moment. his own song. Help's not a difficult song to play, by the way. It's early Beatles. It's, it's not that many chords. He gets the lyrics wrong, and he gets the chords wrong. He needs help to sing the song Help. And in fact, this is a man in his 40s, and what those of us in midlife know is that you need more help rather than less help. 
as you get into middle age and then beyond. John needed more. We need more. There must be a deeper story, and there is one. Because when we're in the realm of that which therapy cannot heal, I think we're in the realm of religion. I think we've moved beneath to an even more universal uh, you know, a level of operation, and that is the spiritual. Now, um, I want to talk about how what we believe God actually does in terms of help that cannot be solved by money or psychology. But before I do that, I want to say that I think the reason I know um, the type of religion that I think um, where you see it truly highlighted uh, as if in its deepest potency, is uh, people who are working in two different places, hospices and jails. And as I've gotten older, I've noticed like I'm much more drawn to Christian voices who are speaking out of those two experiences because they're, living, they're, they're, they're talking to people who need help that's more than just a self-actualization. And it's something that, cannot, that nothing else has been able to budge. And so when we listen to uh, those who are engaged in jail ministry or hospice ministry, you're not dealing with another or like sort of a religiously validated form of acceleration. You're outside the slot rattling. And you're in a place in which God is the only one who can or does help. You know, church sometimes becomes a place where you hear about you can or should help others rather than where you encounter the God who not only helps but delivers. And yet when you're talking to someone who's on their deathbed or someone with a life sentence, that's the only version that finds traction. And so it's so refreshing. And it's not so much like, well, 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 well prisoners need the gospel and, and those of us who are outside this wall, we sort of need the law. No, we all, they just highlight what's true for everyone, I think. So how does God help? I want to get to um, the passage that Callie read so beautifully, which is the, um, uh, the healing of the paralytic in Luke. And it's this, it's this um, wonderful healing that's recorded in all three synoptic gospels. I think it's sort of a reliably uh, just profound instance of how Jesus actually worked. And he does two things. He helps in two ways. And I think they're both important, though one seems to be primary. And the first one that's primary is the one that is, falls under the word forgiveness. Remember, this man, you can go to the next slide, actually. This is Tissot's version of the paralytic being, being uh, lowered by his, his friends. He needs help to get in the door. He needs help to get to Jesus. And he receives it. Um, and it's also, he comes at Christ, not from sort of in front of him, but above. I think that's so cool. A different direction that kind of knocks the, 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 the um, action off the track of slot rattling. So, and what Jesus does is he says, first of all, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think that the phrase that I would use this year that's come back to me after a long time is this is the way God helps us through the assimilation of negativity. The assimilation of negativity. It's a phrase my father used. And it's a very beautiful phrase under which forgiveness, reconciliation, and grace all fall. That, that 
there is a framework to be honest in light of the blood of Christ. There's a framework. Your value is not up for grabs. Therefore, you could admit your faults and your pain. My father defines it this way. The assimilation of negativity refers to a person's willing, painful embrace of the sorrows of life, of himself and his flaws, in coexistence, almost union, with his confidence, aspirations, and joys. It is the opposite of splitting, the phenomenon of distancing our conscious self from unacceptable feelings and experiences, to such an extent that a fissure opens between the conscious self and the unconscious self. The message of the gospel, Dad writes, of God unjustly crediting us as good, allows us to unsplit, to break down the wall, to let the shark back in the water, and deal with the real troubles we have long cordoned off, but to do so without being crushed and devoured. So the forgiveness of sins, I think in the very real sense that we talk about it, Gives, allows a person to assimilate the negativity of their life rather than split and ignore or cause some sort of internal division. This is my Christian self and this is my non-Christian self. This is who I am on Sunday and this is who I am at work. The assimilation of negativity, it is this essence of forgiveness and absolution. The proclamation that the you that you continue to be is somehow lovable in God's eyes, receiving of dignity and attention. And that is helpful, powerfully so. Some of you know that uh, Nick Cave, the wonderful songwriter and singer, wrote this this book, uh, Faith, Hope, and Carnage, from which we've gained a whole heck of a lot this past year. And at the very end of the book, he talks about a... um, Exhibit. He said during COVID he had to do, take up a new job and he became a ceramicist. And he talks at length about this project. And I was so interested in it because, you know, you, you can hear someone talk about art, but if you don't see it, you don't really know what they're talking about. And what he did is he created 17 figures of Satan, of the devil, the devil's life. That's what he did. And he displayed it in Finland with the sculptures of Brad Pitt. Isn't it a great world we live in? Like, th- I mean, come on, that is beautiful. That's amazing. Well, okay, <clears throat> let's get to the next slide. This is what Nick writes. He says, it essentially traces the life of a man, a man with horns, the devil, in 18 ceramic figurines that grow in gravitas as the series proceeds. It begins with the devil's birth which is a beautiful sculpture of a baby awakening nestled against a red fold. Full. Next, go to the next slide. The child inherits the world. Then, next one, he grows up and is initiated into the world by a sailor. Next, he seduces a woman. Next, he fights a lion. Then he goes off to war on a horse, comes back empowered by the war and decked out in medals, takes a bride, kills his first child, becomes separated from the world by his evil deeds, grows old and falls into a state of abject misery and remorse, dances his final dance, 
and dies a bloody death in the arms of two sailors. Eventually, his body is found by a spirit child who kneels and extends his hand in forgiveness. What do you think these sculptures ask of the viewer? Nick is asked in the next uh, page. He says this, he says, I think they can serve as precise meditations on what constitutes a life, insofar as they tell a story of a broken life that collects meaning through misfortune and transgression. And running like a current through each of them is the need to be forgiven. I hope that the sculptures are light enough at heart and sufficiently unassuming to ask this question, can we be forgiven? I think that question is fundamental to all our lives. In fact, it may be the question that our lives pivot around, or indeed the whole world revolves around, can we be forgiven? And it is, of course, a religious question, not least because the secular world has failed to find a way of adequately asking it. So the assimilation of negativity through the forgiveness of God. That is the first way in which God helps. The second, I believe, is through, in the parable, in the, 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 the passage at least, is Jesus actually heals the man. There is a supernatural intervention. There is an encounter with the power of God. In other words, there is an orthogonal movement that bumps this man out of the groove of slot rattling between total despair and naivete. You have the intervention of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do not mean to suggest that the forgiveness of sins isn't a form of intervention. But I sometimes think Mockingbird is kind of weak on this part, this second part of the healing. The actual healing of God, which does occur. And to which our invitation is the invitation of prayer. It is the same invitation that John Lennon gives us to sing help. I need somebody. It's the invitation to pray when we don't know how to pray or when we're too upset to pray. And it is the proclamation that God is the one who listens to cries for help. We're going to hear all about listening on Saturday from a real expert. That God can and decode the message even when it's wrapped up in layers of obfuscation. And the response, if Jesus is to be believed, is one of mercy and healing. Such that our hope looks a bit different than that of John Lennon. It looks a bit like this last video. The look of someone confident that God will help her. Let's roll this next video. Just anybody Help I need somebody Please, please help me When I was younger So much younger than today I 
all building to that. This is where we are, the privilege of moving beyond the financial or political picture of the world, beyond, below even the psychological, down to the place where the cry of help can be desperate like John Lennon's, it can be inarticulate like the middle-aged John Lennon, and it can be the hopeful cry of joy that is confident of a positive an affirming response. Help given both out of desperation and out of freedom. That is the essence of our faith. It is directed at the God who listens. So let me pray for our conference as we move forward. God, we ask for your help these next Two days. Help uh, for the burdens that we carry, for the acceleration that drives us so crazy. Give us rest. Give us freedom. Give us words where we lack them. Insights. Break us out of the slot rattling in which we find ourselves. And minister your grace to us afresh, just as you did to that paralytic. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.